From the Clock Tower at Mountain Air, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to our book club, and thank you for joining us in Season 3 as we continue the journey of Christian conversion. In this episode, we are in The Great Divorce, chapters 6 through 10. And, spoiler alert, if you haven't read along with us to this point, feel free to pause, go read, and come join us. Alex, housekeeping this morning. I see we have some notes. Yes. Well, we were just guests on the Men With Chess podcast with Joseph Weigel. Are we making jokes about the podcast name? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It's a if, if we ha- we haven't covered the book Abolition of Man, but that is the thesis of Abolition of Man is kind of the where that that term, the name of his podcast comes from. And I'm just really impressed with Joseph. I think he's a pretty interesting guy. And yeah, so, someone who f- it feels like you're talking to somebody who has completed a master's degree, PhD, whatever in this subject, um, but is also a fireman and yeah. but incredibly well read and just a awesome amalgam of cool um, interests and effort and. <laughs> A lot of good things. Yeah, it was, it was hard not to talk to with him and just think, this is a guy I want to be friends with. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to the Men With Chess podcast, I would I would look it up. He's going through in a much more systematic and academic way of approaching the books that he's covering. He started with The Abolition of Man and then did some of the almost antithesis-type works of philosophy uh, to kind of show why C.S. Lewis's philosophies are so needed in our day and now he's going to be in that hideous strength and because we covered that book that's why he wanted to talk to us so i'm not sure when our episode with him is coming out but we'll be covering returning a little bit to that hideous strength which was fun for us it's been it's been a while and we love that book so that's right thanks for having us on joseph and then a small note here about send us your voice memos i just i'm going to put in a plug that we would love to hear from you. We need your questions and comments and thoughts and criticisms and all of it. So please send it in. Yeah, if you didn't listen to our C.S. Lewis Reading Day episode, we highlighted some of those voice memos and they're just so fun and very interesting insights. But also we don't want to put pressure that you have to be super interesting when you talk to us. We just really enjoy the feedback. It makes us feel like we're really in a book club instead of just two dudes. All right, Alex, you want to give us the summary for today? Sure. Lewis continues his exploration of the valley of the shadow of life when he comes upon one of the ghosts he met on the bus who attempts unsuccessfully to bring an apple back to the gray town. Another ghost explains that the story of becoming more solid over time is mere propaganda. The ghost's convincing skepticism puts Lewis in a funk until he meets George MacDonald, the angelic guide assigned to him. MacDonald helps Lewis understand what he has seen so far, and together they observe several more ghosts' encounters with their respective guiding angels and their various methods of repelling the invitation to infinite joy. Well read. So for themes today, 
I have heaven and hell working backwards. Okay. And I think it's something you obviously explicitly George McDonald hits on in several different ways, which we'll cover. And then also you see that happening, I think, in the ghosts, in the ghostly encounters. Yeah. And uh, I think he McDonald uses the analogy of a salt desert. And I'm specifically thinking of the the pains and the sufferings that we go through in this life. And that and he talks about this, we might even get to a point of feeling like whatever good can come after this life can't justify the pain and misery happening here. And that hits at a core question, I think, any thoughtful agnostic or atheist or Christian confronts at some point is the pain and suffering in this world and how that pain can turn into deep pools as heaven works backwards. And so um, I need to contemplate that more in my life. And I, I can just tell that that is um, a trove of wisdom that, that can be applied is what I'd say. Yeah, he says when Anados looked into timelessness, he brought no message back, whatever that means. <laughs> but I, but I, think I know what that means. You do know, know what that means. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so Lewis found a book by George MacDonald in a train station, and it was Fantasties. Fantasties, which is an Anados, the main mm-hmm. character, mm-hmm. and so. That's all. That's all I know. I haven't read okay. it yet. <laughs> I want to read it. <laughs> well, the idea of trying to understand timelessness in a mind that is stuck in time. And that's why, you know, when George McDonald's talking about this, we'll bring this up with our with our um, audio clip, that uh, we some of the doctrinal differences of a lot of Christian traditions are really just different frames of reference of this timeless truth and trying to put it in the context of time. And so you'll get almost contradictory conclusions, but none of them make sense unless you're trying to look backward, and even backward is this time context perception, but of something that is true, that our identities are lo- are larger than what our identity is now, hmm. and being able to yield our present identity for to God, who is the source of our growth, is an important pr- part of what it means to let go of yourself. It's kind of like when Jesus says, if you want to find yourself, you have to lose yourself and um, lose yourself specifically for his sake. And so I think that that idea of looking backwards and, and seeing what heaven and hell are and understanding, especially what hell is, just being just a perspective and a state of mind that um, the prisons of our own ego and our own mind seem to be all the reality there is of hell. Hmm. And that kind of leads into my theme, which is just me. <laughs> yeah. It's just a focus on oneself. It's, it, on our notes, it's in all caps with three exclamation points. <laughs> me. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to write it down, but that's just what it is. You know, it's all of these ghosts encounters with their angelic guides and all of this, the very sophisticated <laughs> ways that they argue against joy. It's really in- interesting because on its face, you, you you would really say, well, nobody nobody doesn't want to be happy and everybody wants happiness. 
and I guess it's just understanding what happiness is. And calling everyone wants is themselves. That's right, exactly. <laughs> everyone wants, yeah, like we were talking More about themselves. <laughs> before we started recording is that idea from, you know, the how to win friends and influence people. Everybody's favorite word is their own name. And sometimes instead of novelty and growth and becoming a freshman again and entering into a new phase where you are a fool and accepting your foolish state so that you can truthfully see where you are and by understanding that position, take gradual steps upward that uh, sometimes comfort and familiarity keep us from entering into that path of growth. And so really it's understanding the prison of our own minds is hell and we're stuck in hell when we're stuck in our own egos. And I think every single encounter at least has that angle to it as a, an explanation for the motivation behind these pitiful ghosts, which I unfortunately resonate with a lot. <laughs> I think we, we all do. Excellent. Let's take a break and we'll jump in. Welcome back. We have the bowler hat man who's trying to steal some apples. Yeah, he was talking about, or he talked to him on the bus, right? Yeah. Lewis talked to him on the bus, and his whole idea was trying to create some scarcity in the gray town and getting their, getting his hands on some real commodities. Something real. Yeah. yeah. And, his, and his argument in the bus makes a lot of sense. And then when you see it play out, you know, in the real world, is that what we should call it? The real world, the valley of the shadow of life, this, this landing ground for the, the, the foothills of heaven. If you go towards heaven, it'll always be heaven. So we're in the foothills of heaven and he's trying to lift up apples or fill his pockets. And then he realizes he can't fill his pockets. So he's just going to go for one the biggest one. And then he can't do that. And he ends up trying to, and actually succeeding in lifting the smallest apple. This whole scene is funny to me because I'm imagining this ghost who's trying to be furtive and, and, and kind of skulk around. So no one sees him coming to steal this apple, but he's moving in slow motion because he can't move very fast. So you just have this like slow motion <laughs> ghost running across the grass very slowly. Anyways. And also not furtively because the entire waterfall is watching him yeah <laughs> what did you get from the waterfall angel yeah so lewis doesn't recognize it first right it sees it as a waterfall but eventually i love the description of this angel pouring himself into the land around him yeah um so yeah maybe just the fluidity between heaven itself and the trees and nature and then that angel who he realizes later on is actually a person. And I think that all of this country is supposed to embody God. And so in the same way, it's, it seems like a small type of that. Yeah, I thought of the condescension of God, of the, the mountains kind of pouring out this water down into the lower lands. And it says that the angel is up against the mountain almost as if he were on a crucifix on a yeah. and it also reminded me too of the beginning of the abolition of man when i think it's spencer that uh, lewis is quoting but or that is brought up in the green book about the perception of 
uh, a waterfall and one spectator calling it sublime and the other calling it beautiful and and them trying to say that these are all just subjective experiences anyway anyway but this is almost like lewis saying there is not only beauty or sublimity to this waterfall but it's even more real and actually you can almost give it personhood and so the beauty of a waterfall or a landscape kind of being brought out in this angel I, the first time i read it i was like oh that's an interesting thing that you know the waterfall's an angel too i guess and this time through i was like oh I, I see a lot more because we've you know we've filled our minds with this narrative well not a narrative but with this uh philosophical worldview through so many of uh, other of c.s lewis's books that i saw it with new eyes i thought i think it was uh it was more meaningful this time we'll get to later on the the george mcdonald hell is a state of mind type idea but as far as this the bowler hat man trying to steal an apple and take it to hell i'm trying to think how it applies that uh, of where would we try to steal a piece of reality and then take it into a state of mind for our own benefit i think i'm trying to do that right now a little bit i'm trying to take these truths and put my name plaster my name on it and say look here i'm i'm presenting you with this truth think that i'm important <laughs> because i'm the messenger you know you, you shouldn't kill the messenger but you probably shouldn't worship the messenger either and i think you know it's it's good to recognize goodness to recognize truth some piece of heaven uh, be careful not to try to glory yourself in it i think Sounds like we maybe need to drink from the pool that eliminates all authorship or what, what's the word that he uses for the painter? He says, we just need to go up and drink from this pool yeah. where none of that exists. Anyways, we'll get there. Um, all right. And then he meets the reliable man. Yeah. And also somebody he'd had an experience with on the bus. Yeah. And this guy sees through everything, right? Yeah. Not to be taken in. Yeah. He's a dwarf. He's a dwarf. <laughs> so worried about being taken in that he can't be taken out. And so he doesn't trust anybody because he's, he's seen, and I think truthfully, he's seen things from his own life. You know, you start getting fed propaganda, especially during wartime of these are the bad guys and these are the good guys. And you find out through however much uh, research or or personal discovery i don't know you you skepticism yeah you look into it and you see it's all the same people and they're all the same side and you're just a dupe and it's hard not to take that position of oh i'm just a pawn and a dupe and try to profit from it by saying oh everybody's a dupe and everybody's a pawn and i at least see through it and that's but the the problem with that is that's all you're contributing because then when Lewis turns it back on him and says, "Well, what should we do?" and he's like, "Well, it's not my job to come up with yeah. a plan. That's their job is right. to, like they're the ones who make the program." So I, I like that when he says, "You come in my way," and he's like, "I don't see any purpose in going anyway." And after he leaves, Lewis becomes depressed. Yeah, and because he's... and also more terrified of the shadow heavens he's he's making some seemingly truthful points but the problem is is this uh this ghost doesn't he he wants to blame the they you know in quotes thems for lying and for not really providing anything and then also make them responsible for providing things 
instead of realizing that maybe there is something good beyond him, he's come to this conclusion that there's nothing good and there's nothing good beyond me at least. I've got everything figured out that he cuts himself off to any possibility of good. And the analogy that he makes for any difficult encounter that he, he might have you know, climbing up the mountain on the sharp grass is if somebody tells you that, um, or, or serves you bad eggs and says, if you go on eating the bad eggs, you'll, you'll grow to like bad eggs. And he subtly makes this comparison of something good that is difficult to a bad egg Hmm. because he can't see that there might be goodness that he doesn't like. This is good because when I read it, I thought, well, how do you distinguish between when someone's telling you to eat the bad eggs and eventually you'll like it versus walk on the grass and you'll become stronger? Like if someone's actually leading you towards joy or towards goodness versus just leading you towards suffering. Well, we see the solution that Lewis has to the same skeptical stupor. And that's when he meets George MacDonald. And this person that he admired in his life and trusted through this admiration assuages most of his doubt immediately. In fact, he even says that. It's like, well, at least I can trust you. So just you being here talking to me, I don't really have the doubt anymore. But, you know, I'm going to present it anyway. He, he says something like that, where it's like just your presence. And I think that is the solution to the skepticism that this ghost has, is just admire somebody. Look around you. There are people who are, who are paragons of virtue, who are good that you can see goodness in and might be a little further down the path than you. And instead of thinking that you've already finished the race, you've already got everything figured out, look around, find somebody to admire. And you're going to find that all throughout scripture. You're going to find it throughout history. And you're probably going to find it throughout your own neighborhood too. So instead of thinking that you're just on top, realize we're all on this, uh, this journey. There's going to be people at different positions and it's hard for us to judge, but I don't know, try to admire somebody else beside yourself. That, that one kind of is hard for me sometimes. I, I think part of growing up for me, I remember as an adolescent looking up to leaders and whatever else in different ways. And then as you become old, as you get older and more mature, and then you interact with those people as an adult, some of that shine, I might lose its shine a little bit. And so uh, I've found the people that I admire are, are C.S. Lewis is one of those people, obviously. Yeah. Um, Christ, uh, you know, it's also my neighbor, I would say, but it's more in, in specific virtues that I can see in, in different neighbors and people around. It's not that I'm trying to put a person on a pedestal yeah. and say, oh, they're a special person. Um, I'm sure Lewis had his weaknesses along with his strengths and he'd be the first to admit it, but it's, it's finding those virtues around you and, and getting outside of yourself. Cause that was a huge piece of this, which we'll see with, you know, was it, did we already cover the unicorns? That was from, Not, we haven't through. covered that, but oh, okay. I'd say along, along with that is you'd have to really get to know somebody to see the breadth of their own pilgrim's journey, right? Like we talked about in Pilgrim's Regresses. It's not that we're just on one singular part of that path, but parts of us are in every single stop along that way. And so when you see somebody who might remind you of Mr. Sensible, 
Well, they might be Mr. Sensible in the way that they see religion, but maybe in the way that they're, they've developed a work ethic or in the way that they understand how to in, engage with their familial relationships, they might be a lot further along the process. And it's easy for us. If, if mm. I'm self-absorbed, if my whole story is I'm the protagonist and everybody else is just a character in my story, it's really easy for me to want to make them like these monolithic, um, non-dynamic, one-dimensional type characters and say, this person is, and slap a label on them and not allow them to be more dynamic than that. And then I can see them as these people that just represent me, actually. They become projections of myself and, <laughs> and also ways for me to validate myself. But if you get outside yourself and really learn and get to know people, you'll see that their their characters are so broad. Everybody's almost infinitely complex. And it's impossible not to love somebody that you get to know really well. So if you feel like you're in the stupor of skepticism or cynicism, like this ghost is, I think the solution is get to know some people. You'll be surprised at how admirable every person can be if the more you get to know them. Hmm little preachy, but that's, that's just something that I've recognized from my own life is you can look around the world, the world and see all these people that you're better than, and that aren't as good as you. And, and they're, you know, stupid fools that are these ghosts that are turning away their angels or whatever, if you want to take all this information and just use it to project. Um, and that just, for me, that's just not my experience with people when I, when I learned to get to know people, you know, it's, and that's the solution to, I think any time that I've hated somebody is get to know them better. The last piece I wanted to bring up before the kind of in this moment that he meets his angel, uh, George McDonald, he's, he's in this depression and all of a sudden heaven itself becomes sinister. And I'm thinking of the pilgrims regress and how, you know, as he gets older, the, the idea of God can become sinister if not properly understood. Yeah. And nothing's changed about where he's at. The grass is as real and as, as hard to walk on as it ever was. But as you've introduced skepticism, I just think of the path of somebody who maybe uh, grew up a believer and then introduced a little skepticism into their life. And then all of a sudden that can turn into kind of a dark place. Um, but don't stop on the path. That that's all. Like yeah. follow that skepticism through, and and like you said, find someone to admire. Get outside yourself. Um, and this sounds preachy as well, but I, I I think it's just I it was cool to see a little bit of that pilgrim pilgrim's regress progression with Lewis as he's in heaven. Um, we we did jump the woman who, um, the unicorns, the unicorns, yeah. yeah. What's she terrified of? That anybody see her like this. Yeah. Compared to the angels. Yeah, which is true about her. She is a ghost. And I think that for me, it was just like, oh, this isn't, this, that one's difficult for me. That's true for me. Even in doing this podcast, I'm worried that I say the wrong things so many times because I'm very dedicated to this facade that I know what I'm talking about. And I'm not a fool, but I'm a fool. 
Come into my camp where you just know you're saying the wrong things and then just... <laughs> no, but see, we're in the same camp. That's my point. We're in the same camp and one of us is just holding up this wall, this facade, trying to keep people from seeing the real me. I've seen you in situations in which you didn't know exactly like everything that was going on and you ask questions that betray that you don't know exactly what's going on. You don't have everything figured out. And I'm much more reluctant to ask those questions. Because it's better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And I'm just so, I, I can see reading through that woman's experience, it, it just really like, oh man, this is, a, this is difficult. And this is like one of my big journey trials is get over myself, especially in the way that I think other people see me. Stop trying to have it all figured out. Stop trying to project that I'm, I'm some genius or some, you know, the guy who's got all the answers and be willing to be the fool asking the question that might betray you as a fool. We're all fools. Hmm. When I was learning a second language and living in the country where I learned the language, I had a, this was a real stumbling block for me because you can learn a second language a lot faster if you're willing to sound like a fool, say things wrong. Hopefully you're around people who kindly tell you you're wrong, but even if they don't do it kindly, every time you do something wrong and somebody corrects you, you can see it as a tragedy because it's showing you that you're not good enough, or you can see it as an opportunity for growth. And the difference between those two states of mind is all the illusion of what you want to present yourself as. And this woman is in a place where she can't present that illusion anymore. So she doesn't even want to, she doesn't want to be there. It's too uncomfortable. I see actually in her maybe a little more hope, and maybe this is wishful thinking. I see more hope than I see with most of the ghost encounters hmm. where there is this last resort and the last resort is fear and maybe just total humiliation, a, a type of humiliation that you can't escape. And maybe that's where all of our pride takes us eventually in a very fingers crossed, I don't know, type way. <laughs> I hope that's where I go, you know, hope kind of ho don't hope. Hopefully you're hoping pride is your fall. Is that what you're saying? No, I, well, I, no, I'm, ho I'm hoping that my pride takes me to an inevitable humiliation. And that's a hard thing. That's a difficult thing to hope because <laughs> who hopes for their own humiliation, you know? And, and I think that that is true. Eventually we're going to have to come to the presence of God and see our lack in comparison. And will that and fill us? And if you're thinking about yourself, yeah, it's going to be humiliating. We'll want the mountains to fall on us, to, to hide us from him. Um, or we can use that as something to pull us, you know, to. This conversation rem reminds me of screw tape letters, uh, that it's better that the patient dies in a nursing home surrounded by people that lie to them. Yeah. Versus being confronted with fear and death and some of these things that shock us out of uh, our self-focus. This problem that we've talked about a little before where I want my kids to feel special, special to me, but I don't want them to really believe it. You know, I don't want them to think that they're better than other people. I don't want them to be so self-focused. I think the reason, cause it's true. They are the most special people in the world to me and I want them to know truth. But that's because their relationship with me is so important 
that I don't want them to be insecure and come to me with walls of insecurity and, and facade, uh, of facades of defensiveness in engaging with me. And so they need to know that they're accepted by me. And in that way, I want them to feel special, but I don't want them to really learn that lesson and go out and think that they're more special than other people, because then they're going to encounter reality and reality will tell them that other people don't really care about their story so much. They're going to go into other situations, be it competitive situations in sports, in finding a job, in relationships, and evidence will say to them over and over again that they're no more important than anybody else. When they encounter that truth, I want them to just handle it with grace and ease. So how do you tell somebody that they're special without them really, without it going to their head? My thought is that if they see their father exercising the virtue of humility, they'll understand that my dad doesn't think he's the most important thing in the world. And so uh, he loves me and that love is between us, but it's not, it's not a chip that you play in a public situation where you're like, well, my dad thinks I'm special, (laughs) (laughs) right? You're just, it's special because it's, it's your dad. Yeah. Not because he's this prominent, important person to be loved by. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Well, that puts more responsibility on me, which I'm uncomfortable with. <laughs> but I think just in this conversation that I, the truth is really the solution, which is they are the most important and special people to me. I can say that without reservation because it's true, but also with that reminding them that other people are the most important people to their parents and we're all kind of equal in the sight of God. Yeah, it's that paradox. It's that paradox of our existence with as, as creations of God that Jesus would have atoned for me individually. And yet the same is true about everybody else. I think we'll come around to this conversation again when we're talking about the angel and the painter, because he's talking about um, everyone here is famous. No one has a reputation. Yeah. And why they're famous. So I think we'll get yeah. back to that. Well, let's get to there sooner than later and take a break. Okay. Welcome back. I feel like the this whole section that we read is kind of leading, or the focus of these chapters is chapter nine. Hmm. And that's when we finally meet George MacDonald. And Lewis starts to understand or be taught by his tutor um, what he's already observed. And then they start going on and observing these encounters together. And it's uh, much more instructive because... We have somebody to explain things, even the reality of the situation that they're in and where they are. Have we talked about George MacDonald before on this podcast? Maybe just briefly in passing. I looked him up last night on Wikipedia and there's a solid, I don't know, four inch paragraph of all the great authors who said that George MacDonald was an inspiration for them and a hero for them. Just interesting. Yeah, I've started reading... Um, some of the Curdy books and then the Fantasties. It's a different writing style. It was hard for me to get through. Um, so I haven't finished any of those. But I do have like the plan to kind of read those to my kids 
in our nightly reading. Hmm. And um, even Lewis has a book about the works of George MacDonald. So. I like it. But what I th see is George MacDonald is to Lewis in a lot of ways that as Lewis <laughs> is to me, and I don't want to make there those those uh, comparisons and equivalents because I haven't really done anything. But um, yeah, where it's like, I hope that if I were in this situation in the foothills of heaven, that my guide would be C.S. Lewis. That would be awesome. <laughs> um, so So here's where we hit George MacDonald talks about uh, good and evil being retrospective and all life on earth eventually becomes heaven and hell depending on where we decide to go after. And I, I thought it was interesting that he talks about these, the kind of two sides of the coin that, you, that it, approaching sin, you would feel that the pleasure of this sin is worth the consequence and not recognizing that in partaking of that sin or participating in that sin, that it will then work back to eventually kind of contaminate everything in your life. Including the pleasure that came from the sin. Yeah. Everything will become almost this like source of guilt and shame. And he says that talking about, because there's like the two motivators that you can see in the ghosts. One is just pride and wanting, you know, he says it's like a child having the sulks yeah. and, and missing out on all the good potential. Missi missing out on dinner just because they'd rather have their sulkiness than they would. Right, because they were food. treated poorly according to their understanding of fairness or whatever. And it's like all of these prideful states of mind are just kind of ver versions of that childishness. And then he says that the sensualist is a little less damning. Yeah, and this this was really interesting to me that that a lot of these ghosts you see the grumbler or uh, you know the the lady who just was a total tyrant to her husband or whatever they're they're not sins of sensuality. This it's not that they you know they were fornicating or whatever. It, it was sins of they had set up a different god for themselves. Whether it's control to try to control your your spouse or other people, if only I can have them, nobody will let me work on them. You know? Yeah. Or if it's uh, a pro proving that you were important the whole time and you've been mistreated, everything that didn't go your way, it wasn't because of any inadequacy on yourself, but it was because these other people just mistreated me my whole life at every point, right? That was the, the angle that the grumbler took. Yeah, and the communist on the bus. <laughs> yeah. I like that Lewis makes the comment about well, my Catholic friends wouldn't like that. It seems like that he kind of he comments about the two different sects and how they have different ideas about what reality would be like in heaven. And McDonald just says it doesn't help to speculate on those things because you need to be outside of time and space, and you're in both. Is it time and space? Yeah, that's part of our um, audio clip. So should we play that right now? So we let's can, do it. Yeah, let's check. This is from chapter nine. It's about a third of the way through. Saw only salt deserts. Memory truthfully records that the pools were full of water. Then those people are right who say that heaven and hell are only states of mind. Hush, said he sternly, do not blaspheme. Hell is a state of mind. He never said a truer word, 
and every state of mind left to itself, every shutting up of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind, is in the end hell. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly, for all that can be shaken will be shaken, and only the unshakable remains. But there is a real choice after death. My Roman Catholic friends would be surprised, for to them souls in purgatory are already saved, and my Protestant friends would like it no better, for they'd say that the tree lies as it falls. They're both right, maybe. Do not fash yourself with such questions. You cannot fully understand the relations of choice and time till you are beyond both. So hell is a state of mind. Right. But heaven is the opposite. Yeah, it's reality itself. In fact, we are kind of just a state of mind in comparison to heaven. <laughs> or the way that we see the world in its reality, the way we understand reality. It reminded me of, um, in The Pilgrim's Regress, is the black hole only existing because reality has formed boundaries around something or nothing. It's not that the black hole existed, but that reality in comparison to it made it a black hole, made nothingness a black hole. So I think that's where Lewis gets confused because this idea of progression beyond death, beyond what we would call maybe final judgment, and this is you know a doctrinal consideration or um, contention. You know, once we're what happens after we die? Is it just our our life is what determines where we go, heaven or hell? And he brings up that the Catholic perspective of purgatory is the kind of the initiation or the, the purging of all evil before you can enter into heaven. And so it, it itself is for the, the saved. Everybody has to go through that. And that um, the Protestant would say the tree falls where it or lands where it falls. or something. Yeah, lands where it falls. And so it's like wherever you were, that's just... You know, and then the dependence on grace, which is, you know, doctrinally accurate, that the grace will save you even if you fall as a believer in your imperfection. Hmm. And that it's both of those are true from a timeless perspective from this point of view, which is what I really believe that obviously we're not going to be perfect when we die. And no unclean thing can be in the presence of God. And those things seem to exclude us from his presence. And then, but the atonement and how it works and when that comes into play, and maybe it's coming into play right now. Maybe I can participate in or receive the grace of God right now in order to, I don't know, effectuate heaven in my relationships and in the world, whether for myself or even for other people. When you said, maybe I can participate right now, the phrase that came to mind was the thing that's most like eternity is the present. Yeah. It's probably the only way you can participate in it is just right now because we don't understand eternity yet. Yeah. Which makes me feel like I have the responsibility of being happy right now, <laughs> <laughs> even if, it, if I'm going through the salt deserts. Yeah. He says it's the opposite of, heaven's the opposite of a mirage. Yeah, I like that analogy. Where you see, it's like the, the illusion is the desert, not the oasis. And the oasis is there, kind of waiting for us all the time, in reality. 
It's not just positive mindset. It's not just rose-colored glasses. You're not just pretending, but really seeing that uh, the difficult aspects of our life can give the dynamic range of our mortal experience and in that way play a part of our eternity or play a part of a joyful life. I don't know. Does that, does that seem to be taking too lightly the suffering that people experience? I don't think you're trying to take it too lightly, but could it be perceived by somebody who is in that valley as being too glib or too easy? You know, yeah, yeah, this life's hard, but, you know, yeah. we're going to have eternal joy and happiness. Yes, it could be taken that way, but only, only if it's misunderstood in the same way that Lewis starts to see heaven as terrifying. If the, those beliefs lead you to inactivity of relieving suffering here, like Christ didn't not heal the people around him and serve them and teach them because he thought, ah, they've got eternity to figure that out. No, he, <laughs> he ministered to them right here, right now, and then told us to follow him. So if it calls us to action in the present, then I think that it's properly understood or more rightly understood. <laughs> this brings to mind the in Pilgrim's Regress that God is a gambler. Yeah. You know, there's the, what, what part is that? That's toward the end. But the idea of like, is this what um, Slickestein Zauga, where he talks about what's the, what's the counterpoint? Well, well, he says a lot of, a lot of people, there's the accusations that people level against God, but they don't really have data to back it up. And he says, the only thing that the data seems to back up is that God's a gambler. Yeah. And that seems terrifying that God's a gambler, but what he's gambling is that we will use our own freedom and our own choices to put our own egos aside and choose him. And he can't compel it. He can't tempt to virtue like the devil can tempt to vice. And so that is a gamble. And it really is the risk of our existence. And it really is the only way that we can participate. And I think that word participate is kind of what's jumping out to me because if you have this idea of happiness and heaven as being just continuous comfort and ease, then heaven in actuality will not satisfy, will not be what you're looking for because heaven is not comfort and ease. It's participation and growth and participation is uncomfortable and growth is uncomfortable and painful. And yet people go on hikes for fun. I mean, this is the, <laughs> this is where it's contending with some of my dependence on comfort and my, the way that I see the world and I'm just trying to be left alone and not do difficult things. And I would just want people to think that I'm smart instead of go through the uncomfortable process of learning. And that's where all my defensive walls come from. And if joy involves sorrow and difficulty, then maybe it's the participation itself that is the joy. And the idea that we can participate at all is not a given. It's a gift. I don't know. I'm see, I'm <laughs> I'm in the deep I'm, I'm in the deep of it right now, just going through my own existential crisis of of what it is, what what I what's this deep desire? What's the sweet desire that's calling me to, or could call me to, toward Jesus. 
instead of leaving me stagnating in my own ego. That's a desire to participate, to go about and do good. Yeah, I I think what you talked before about wanting your kids to feel your unconditional love, but not for that to turn them into prideful little creatures that are then uh, aren't able to handle what the world's going to tell them and teach them <laughs> outside of your home. And I, I, I think a, some of the solution is found in this grappling with God's love for us. And he's, through the scriptures, reminds us of our own nothingness, but also of our infinite worth. And we're taught both of those things in the scriptures. Theodicy, man. This is difficult. <laughs> I mean, it's difficult. I can feel I can feel the truth. It's just hard to put in words. It's hard to identify the the motivation, God's motivation for us. And in the same way, it's like when I think of my children, it's like telling them, I love you, not because of anything you've done. Not like you've <laughs> you deserve, don't deserve you, it. <laughs> but because I made you. You know, yeah. and in a lot of ways that's that really is the truth. That's why I love them because I made them. Um, I'd like to see everything they do as being uh, meritorious of my affections. But really it's like that's the unconditional love of God is he loves us because of what he did, right? We love him because he first loved us and that that relationship is difficult. And these are all these ineffable transcendental type truths that, I don't know, our earthly experience can't really get at, but we feel that they're true. Yeah. One way I like that it was applied. So he ta- he says Milton was right that there's the souls that feel like it's better to reign in hell than to rule in heaven. Yeah. And then he makes it really applicable with a couple of these lines. It's in Achilles' wrath, in revenge, in injured merit, grandeur, self-respect, tragic greatness, and proper pride. That are all just versions of the child with the sulks. Yeah. And I, that was just like, little dagger, little dagger, little dagger. <laughs> just like all the different ways that we want to hold on to those different versions of ourself that justify us in not letting go of ourselves. Right. It reminds me from previous chapters of the big ghost saying, I have to have my rights. See, that's all I want. And his angel saying, oh, it's not that so bad as that. We shall none of us have our rights. Yeah. And I love that later on he talks about the man who collects books, who loves to read so much he collects books and eventually loses his love of reading. He doesn't even read the books he's collecting. And the man who organizes charities but doesn't actually love the poor. And and later on, I, we've talked about him a couple times. I think we can maybe jump to him. I, I really loved the interaction between the, the painter ghost and his angelic companion because they kind of start the journey together. He starts walking and his and the ghost has this conversation about that you first loved light, but then it became painting for painting's sake. And he talks about how a lot of great artists eventually lose that and it becomes painting for painting's sake. And then he says later on in hell, it becomes about their personalities in their painting. And the last level after that is, and then in just their own reputations and they can't be interested in God at all. Yeah, that's interesting because that comes after talking about all these spirits that, or these ghosts that have gone on the journey up to heaven 
and they they are they they have devo- devoted themselves to a good you know a quote unquote good yeah but they get so obsessed with that premature good they can't let go of it to go to the next level of good and this is obviously something that you know has has its hooks in me a little bit which is developing a virtue and then getting so excited about how virtuous you've become in that one regard that you're unwilling to be go back to square one to become a freshman again in a new process going to the next level and instead of seeing the growth and progression as being the purpose of taking a step you just get become infatuated with how well you took that step now this is my step i love this step you know maybe this step's the end yeah and and he eventually (laughs) he eventually heads back he goes back to hell when he finds out that he'll never have a reputation in heaven he'll be famous in that the most important being and mind will know him but that's it and that isn't enough for him joy is not enough for him he wanted fame he wanted his reputation on earth yeah the being known by the supreme being creator is if inferior to him than having a crowd of admirers and it's obviously <laughs> giving up eternal joy for something so comparatively insipid this is definitely speculation but it will be so interesting to see when we take off the veil of this world and we're in i mean to me these ghosts they're they're in pre-heaven and in my in my mind wouldn't it become so obvious then that's one thing you're thinking with any of the ghosts interaction isn't it so obvious that now's the time you let go of this and how many of us will still hold on to it i think other people's vices are always really obvious to us i think the one specific to us will be will cost us everything to give up Hmm. and so it will seem yeah why doesn't this guy just get over his pettiness or this person get over their vanity or this person get over their grumbling and really it's like but you know the vice that i'm dealing with actually is more important than eternal joy you know (laughs) and it really that idea of like giving it all up every everyone i think that's the challenge the abrahamic trial of all of us is we have to give up the thing that is most dear to us and I think Abraham, with that being embodied in his son, I think is it's true even more when it's embodied in our own selves. We have to die. Yeah. So that's why I get a little uncomfortable with the, yeah, oh yeah, I know somebody who's like that ghost. <laughs> <laughs> when all these ghosts are in me, even, you know, even the more silly ones. And that's what there, there are the ones that are like monstrous and, and come all the way up to the foothills of heaven to shake their fist at heaven because they hate or envy or envy or have contempt for joy and in some way they are farther or more savable than the people who think they already have it yeah because they actually knew they knew how to distinguish between god or heaven and hell and in a little teaser this is kind of what we're going to go down a path of somebody like that in till we have faces that's kind of the situation of the life of Orwell, um, who's the main character in that book. And that's where we're going next. Not not next next, but um, after our next 
couple episodes. I have a lot of apprehension and excitement about Toby yeah. Have Faces. Well, because- you, the way you've talked about it, scared and excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, I think it's important to see in what way, because it's so much easier to relate to Orwell than it is to maybe some of these ghosts from this third person perspective. And Lewis is obviously identifying her as what his struggle is too. It's very autobiographical as well. So I, I just love this book. I love uh, The Great Divorce, how um, instructive it is for this seemingly paradoxical or <laughs> uh, it, it's almost like on its face seems obvious but we don't love goodness as much as we think. And if we think everything that we like is good, then we might just stop where we are. And if we see difficulty and progression and walking on the, the our ghosty feet on the pokey grass. Then it might seem like rotten eggs. Yeah, we're going to call goodness something bad. Hmm. Paying attention to where this pursuit of joy calls us to become uncomfortable because it's going to call us to become uncomfortable. It's going to call us to become, to die, right? Yeah. I can tell I've been getting a little too uh, lofty in my language and academic and and preachy because it's really uncomfortable for me to engage with this directly. So maybe <laughs> if you've gotten through this episode and you're like, yeah, stop preaching at us so much and it, maybe that's just because that's a evidence of my discomfort with realizing and seeing a lot of this stuff in me. Last, last kind of chapter ten, you have Robert. Another example I I love in the same way I love how Lewis talks about lust and charity and chastity and in such a real way, in a way that I feel like he's trying to take real Christian virtues. And and lay it over something that's incredibly important and integral to this part this part of our life. He does that with marriage and marriage relationships. And you have a I think a couple of the ghosts, the familiar relationships. You eventually will get later on a son and a, a mother and a son, and you also you get another husband, husband wife. And so this woman in chapter ten is terrifying. And as you read her story and and as she explains her husband and and how she had to make him what he was what a terrifying spouse (laughs) 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 oh uh, you know and she saw and how blind she was to the fact that she literally just brought so much misery to this guy that he died of a nervous (laughs) episode um what, what was instructional for you with this one? Well, just that when we try to control other people's lives for their own good, it makes us insatiable tyrants. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to be self-obsessed. And we can be self-obsessed in our seemingly in seeming selflessness. She's, she saw herself as an entirely selfless person who did everything for him. Yeah. So that she but she was control. doing nothing for him. <laughs> <laughs> right, according to her own story. And that's, obviously we all are tempted to this, to try to prove, use other people as, way of, as a way of proving our virtue to ourselves. 
Yeah. If it, uh, our own virtuousness is one of those tempting ways to prove to ourselves our self-importance. And we need to actually get over our own virtue or at least our own idea, our own ego, virtue, <laughs> our own um, perception of our virtue. If we do it for our own glory, then it's just as good as if it were an extreme vice. Alex and I were talking before we started recording this morning about the best friendships and relationships, the ones who that have the most meaning are ones where you, you actually can work together to help each other see those areas that, I mean, I mean, I think accepting our own blindness, uh, accepting that we need, what was the name of the guy on Pilgrim's Regress whose name is like Sight? Yeah. Who walks them back through the line. Schlickenstein Sauga. Schlickenstein Sauga. We need our Schlickenstein Sauga <laughs> in our friendships and relationships and how that's going to take humility and it's going to take all of these <laughs> virtues just to be able to put up with that. But that that is where the real meaning in the relationship is created because um, it reminds me of, of screw tape letters when it just says, you know, the patient can't see something that anyone who spent any amount of time with them would have seen immediately. And we, we need those mirrors around us to help us with our blind spots. Thank you for being in our book club. We hope, as always, you'll continue with us. Next week, we are reading chapters 11 through 14 of The Great Divorce. If you'd like to participate with comments, questions, criticisms, or corrections, you can email us a message or voice memo at bookclub at mountainair.media, M-T-N-A-I-R. Please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app. Also, if you listen on Spotify, in the show description, there's a link for leaving a voice memo. So if you don't want to do it through email, you can do it that way. And either way, we'd love to hear from you, and we've enjoyed it so far. So um, thank you for listening, and we hope you come back next week. See you then. See you next week.